and welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I am Steve Magnus, and this time we've got another good friend and colleague, but not John. He's out there coaching his collegiate team with a real job. So I brought in friend of On Coaching, friend of the science of running, Brad Stolberg. Brad, how's it going, my man? It's going well. Are you implying that we don't have real jobs, though, Steve? No, man. John's John's out doing stuff. He's coaching kids. We're just like, you know, sitting around being parents, writing some books. He's he's uh, he's in the in the arena. So, dude, I, mean, I coached have... I coached four U soccer. I'm coaching five U basketball this year. That's true. That's that's a hard task. So, and that's why you're on the on coaching podcast. I heard great things from the three and four year olds you're working with. And they said, you know, we got to get you on the podcast. But in all seriously, seriousness here, Brad is on for a specific reason. It's because everybody who knows my story knows that, you know, running can throw you for a loop. Anybody who's coached has known that athletes, especially high school, college athletes, but also professional athletes, they struggle often with intertwining their identity and the thing. They struggle with change, moving from JV to varsity, from high school to college, from college to post-collegiate, like every different level, from post-collegiate or whenever their athletic career finishes to where does running fit in my life? And this is honestly one of the toughest things to deal with. And one of the things I know that I've had so many conversations with athletes and coaches, many of you listening on. And that's why we brought in the master who wrote the book, Master of Change, his newest book, which is out now, which if you haven't gotten it, I don't know what you're doing. You need to go pick it up. And we're going to look at how to master change as an athlete. So let's dive into it, shall we, Brad? Yeah, thanks for the wonderful introduction. Let's do it. Mastering change as an athlete. All right, so you you have these insights, and I'm just going to make a comment, and then I want you to go and tell me what that means for athletes and runners and coaches. In So let's start with this first one. Understand, accept, and embrace that there will be changes throughout your progression as an athlete. All right, so... What this means is that I think that too often we delude ourselves into thinking that we're never going to get injured or we're never going to mess up the training plan or we're never going to have missteps or we're never going to age or we'll only keep getting better. And I think we have to do some of that delusion because otherwise we would never run um, if we knew that we were going to get hurt and if we knew that eventually age would come for us and slow us down. So it's not always a bad thing to do some of this delusion, but we can't go all the way with it because then what happens is that when that injury does occur or when we do misstep in a big race or when we do mess up our training cycle or when aging does come for us, we're thrown for such a loop and we freak out so hard instead of recognizing and acknowledging that part of being an athlete is navigating all of these changes and accepting impermanence and change. And I think here, the most important reframe is that you're not just training for sport, you're training for life. 
And sport and running in particular is such a great microcosm to develop life skills. Because what happens in life? You have successes, you have frustrations, you have gain, you have loss, you have um, all sorts of things come up. And this all happens in running in a very compressed timetable. Um, so I think that if we can acknowledge and accept that running will be this ongoing ebb and flow of highs and lows and positive changes and negative changes, it prepares us to meet life um, in a more skillful way. Man, you're speaking coaching talk right there. Now I know that why those five you uh, athletes are and parents are are uh, raving about your coaching because in all seriousness, that's what we say on this podcast. That's what so many coaches tell me. This is why I think high school and coach college coaches are so valuable because what do they do? They take those lessons and prepare you for life. And I think you're spot on is that acceptance and embracing that is is so, so important. So yeah, let's you, don't have, you don't have to like it. Like no one likes a proximal hamstring injury, but you got to accept that, hey, like part of running and competing hard is, yeah, you're going to strain a muscle sometimes. Um, and and that's so much better than like anger and trying to train through it and, and all that. Yeah, it's the injury cycle is the example that gets everyone because it, it really does feel like sometimes life and death. You feel like, oh my gosh, like my world is over because I hurt my hamstring or I got shin splints or my Achilles is done. And what better lesson to uh, to portray or give than to like teach people how to deal, cope with those things and learn from it and, and grow from it and move on than, um, than as athlete because they're going to face the same thing as a person as well. So let's, number two, yeah. I, I like this. I want, but you got to explain this one. Adopt a being over having orientation. What in the world does that mean? Oh, we're getting a little zen here, but I actually think this is one of the more important things for runners. So this comes from the work of Eric Fromm, who was a mid 1900s psychoanalyst. And he wrote this um, lovely book that had a framework in it of to have or to be. And when you are in a having orientation, you define yourself by the things that you have. So I have this PR, I have this state championship, I have this long jump. Um, when you're a being orientation, you define yourself by your essential values. So I value running, I value competing, uh, I value being healthy. And what Fromm argued is that a having orientation makes you fragile. And I build on that in Master of Change and I say, well, yeah, it makes you fragile because everything that you have is going to change. So you have a PR until you don't and you stop getting better. It's going to happen to all of us at some point. You have the state record until someone else beats it. Um, you have a state championship until the next year another team wins or until you graduate to college and now you got to raise the bar. Um, you have a certain way of rounding the corner in um, a mile until um, you experience an injury. So if we define ourselves by what we have and those things change, well, then we don't really know who we are. Whereas if we define ourselves by what we really value, I'm a runner, I'm an athlete, I'm someone dedicated to excellence, I'm someone dedicated to competition, those are much more rugged and robust and durable throughout periods of change. I think another way to do this is the time. I'm a, I, I'm a three-hour marathoner. I have a sub-three marathon. I have a sub-five mile, whatever it is. It's like, okay, but what if you didn't? versus I race marathons really well, or I enjoy pushing myself. 
And the more that we can define ourselves in a being orientation, um, the, the grittier we are over time. So this, I love this point because it's one of the central, I think, uh, th- uh, things that we face as coaches. Because track and field running is so easy to latch on to that time or that place or that award or that accolade that it really can throw you for a loop. And again, from my life, you know this, Brad, and you just basically outlined everything from from my experience. But like when you make that time the self-defining thing, it does make you fragile because it, it, it feels like a threat to your sense of self because like you're not who are you if you don't have this time or who are you if you don't have this accolade or medal or achievement behind your name. And that creates all sorts sorts of turmoil and often makes you, you know, um, changes the experience of the thing that you love or enjoy. You go from enjoying running to often, you know, sadly, after retirement or you're done with it, sometimes you, you, you kind of despise or hate the thing, not because you don't like the activity itself, but because you have this having orientation that just latches you on to this thing that you can't let go of. Yep. And I think this is non-dual because anyone that runs competitively is going to care about some of those objective metrics and times. Like there's nothing wrong with that. You just never want that to be the sole thing driving you. And when you catch yourself getting anxious or running with fear, I think a good thing to do is step back and say, hey, am I over identifying with the having? And can I identify with the being more? And as a coach, I think your job is to instill in athletes that the having matters and you want to go for it, but the having all takes place in the context of being. So at the end of the day, like you're a runner, you're committed to excellence, you're committed to progress, whatever it might be. And that's the thing that we're working towards here. And all of the havings, the state championships, the sub four miles, whatever it is, those are all just like things that are going to be their successes or failures along the way in this broader context. I love it. I think it's so important. All right. The third one, when you face setbacks, do what you can to practice tragic optimism, wise hope, and wise action. What are those? So tragic optimism, a term coined by Viktor Frankl, and it essentially says that life is full of tragedy and um, there's no escaping it. There's physical pain and emotional pain. There's loss. There's things that we love changing. There's frustration. And rather than be a Pollyanna or be toxically positive and say everything's great always, it's okay when bad things happen to be really sad and to allow yourself to be really sad and to be bummed out and to not deny that sometimes life is cruel and sometimes we get bad breaks. And at the same time, not exclusive, but at the same time, to try to trudge forward with a hopeful attitude and optimistic attitude nonetheless. So to say, you know, this injury happened and this just sucks, or my athletic director just made these cuts and I think she's insane and this just sucks. And not to pretend otherwise, not to say, well, what are three things I'm grateful for, even though this just, no, like just let it suck and then do the hard work of moving forward with an optimistic attitude and saying, even though this just sucks. I can still move forward and do the best I can with a hopeful, optimistic, realistic attitude. I, I love that. I think it frames, again, things per- perfectly well because track and field is going to, like running is going to 
take you on some ultimate highs and some very low lows. And like the appropriate framing allows you to, as my high school coach once said, is like not to get too high on the highs and not too low on the lows and face it appropriately. Yeah. I mean, the things that you care about, they break your heart because like inevitably at some point they don't go as you thought they'd go. And the answer isn't to be like, oh, my heart's not broken or I don't care. I should just be positive about this. It's to say like, no, this this did break my heart and I'm just going to keep trudging along because I care about this thing. Yeah, it's embracing the reality of the situation. All right. So this fourth one, diversify your sense of self within sports and perhaps more importantly, outside of sport. All right. So here I want to tell the story of the speed skater Niels Vanderpool. Uh, Niels Vanderpool won the gold medal in the 5K and 10K speed skating event at the 2022 Winter Olympics. He also shattered the world record. So he's the best long course speed skater to ever step foot on this planet. He likely will be for quite some time. Uh, In the years leading up to the games, though, he felt he was underperforming a bit. And he stepped back and asked himself, well, why is this happening? And he identified fear is the main factor. So he was feeling a lot of fear every time he stepped into the oval to compete. Then he said, well, why am I feeling this fear? And he realized that there was no Niels Vanderpool outside of Niels Vanderpool, the speed skater. His entire identity was wrapped up in speed skating. And if he suffered an injury or an illness or a misstep, he would not know what to do with himself because there was no self outside of speed skating. So Vanderpool did something that is pretty unprecedented for a world-class athlete. And that is in the lead up to the 2022 Olympics, he took weekends off. So Friday night to Monday morning, Vanderpool essentially did nothing with speed skating. He went out for pizza and beers. He went hiking. He read books. He got involved in his community, but he was not a speed skater during that time. And he says that this allowed him to create other sources of meaning and identity in his life beyond speed skating so that it wasn't just speed skating. And that helped him shed his fear because he knew that even if and when, because eventually it happened, speed skating changed for the negative, there would be other parts of himself that gave him meaning and joy in his life. And I think this is maybe the most important lesson for young athletes that you can care a lot about your pursuit in sport and you can even go all in, but you can't go all in all the time. And it can't be the only thing that you care about because when things change, it will throw you for such a loop. So the metaphor I like to use is it's good to think of your identity like a house. And if a house only has one room in it and that room catches on fire, you're screwed. But if a house has a couple rooms, well, one room catches on fire, you can go in another room. So here, the big identities people are going to have are the running room or the coaching room. And it's all right if that's a big room. Maybe it's your favorite room. Maybe it's the room you spend the most time in. But I just argue that it can't be the only room. Because when shit hits the fan and things change, you want to be able to seek refuge in other parts of your identity. It's so easy, especially if you have early success, to have your identity cement around something. And that that is, as you outlined there, that is so dangerous because it doesn't, it, it makes you fragile, right? And we've talked about identity and fragility a lot on here, but it really does because if, as you pointed out, if you lose the race, it's not I lost the race. It's that I am a loser or I am a failure. 
And it reminds me of the story or it reminds me of this experience I had when I was gosh in, in college when a sports psychologist, you know, uh, who's worked with a lot of runners came to me and said, you know, he's telling me the story of this Olympian who was really struggling for a while and she hadn't quite made it on the, the highest high. And he said, you know, the advice that that helped her perform and live better. And I was like, what is it? And he said, I told her, you know, go embrace the knitting club you want to join. And it, it as a 21 year old, I was like, really, this is what matters. But it was it is because what did that do? It, it kind of diversified herself. It diversified her se- sense of uh, self and hobbies and experiences and other things. And I think, you know, if you do that, you can make yourself much more of a robust athlete and human being. Yeah. And just to be clear, and I know that you and Marcus have belabored this point. We've belabored it together in our work. This isn't about being quote unquote balanced. It doesn't mean that all the rooms have to be the same size and you need to spend the same amount of time in each room. It's just about having some other rooms. And much like an actual house, over the course of your life, you're going to spend different amounts of times in different rooms during different seasons. And it's okay to have a season that's really focused on running or coaching. You just don't want to let the other rooms get all moldy. Like you want to go in there just enough that you hold on to them. All right, let's go to the fifth one. Remember not only your individual and independent self, but also your connected and dependent self. All right, high school and college coaches are going to dig this, and I think it's so important, and I think it's kind of a trap that some professional runners run into and why I'm really glad to see the resurgence of teams uh, here in America. So an independent self is a very Western view, and it views yourself as separate from your environment and exerting control over and influencing things around you. An interdependent self is more Eastern, and you see yourself as a part of an environment and in a relational role and constantly being influenced by the things around you instead of just influencing them. And when you over-identify with an independent self, you experience a lot of stress and anxiety because it's a whole lot of pressure to put on yourself to like have to exert your will and change the world all the time. Whereas if you can identify with an interdependent self and be a part of a team or an organization or something that means more than just you, it allows you to be really free. Because it's not just you against the world, it's you as a part of the world, and it's you with these teammates against the world. Um, So I cannot stress enough, especially for superstar high school or middle school collegiate athletes, is to run in team and club settings. It is more fun. It makes you part of something. If things don't go well, you can mentor those that are there. I cannot speak enough to the importance of the club, the team, in, in individual sports. Um, because it makes you interdependent. You're no longer independent. Um, we see this a lot with the way that, you know, you've coached Steve and your boy Danny Mackey's coached. But I think the even more wild example is Stu McMillan and Dan Paff over at Altus. I mean, they're coaching sprinters who sometimes the whole race takes 10 seconds in an individual sport. Like there's nothing more individual than a 10 second sprint in an indoor stadium where there's no weather. But they're really deliberate to do everything as a part of a team. And why? Because they want their athletes to have an interdependent lens. They want them to realize that it's more than just them. Yeah, I think this is, again, cross-country coaches are nodding because we see the elevation of the performance when you get that team culture and team aspect going. 
And I think this applies to to so much. So it really does. When you have that interdependent, you it changes your um, how you view the world. I mean, I talked about it in Do Hard Things, where it changes the di- how you see difficult tasks. Like weights look like they're they you guess they weigh less. Like hills look like they are not as steep when you're there with teammates versus when you're there alone. So this is another wonderful example. All right, number six, know your core values and apply them to sport. Why is this important? Well, as I said in the outset, we're training for life, not for sport. So what do you value in life and then how can you practice it in sport? Uh, If you value excellence, well, practice being excellent in sport. If you value health, well, train in a way that's healthy. If you value community, well, then make sure that you're training with other people and building community. Um, If you value religion or God, well, then train in a way that honors that. Uh, If you value integrity, well, then don't dope. Um, I could go on and on. But again, if we put sport in its place, which is a big part of life, for some people, a central part of life, but you're still ultimately training for life. Well, you want to bring your core values from life to sport. Otherwise, there's a lot of dissonance. It doesn't feel good and you don't get as much meaning out of it. You know, I'm going to take this to someone you briefly mentioned as our uh, friend Danny Mackey, who, gosh, I remember when he first got the job at the Brooks Beast, like he had very clear values. You know, he's a religious person, uh, really values that faith, but also wanted to do things the right way in sport and 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 see if it could be done. So he held integrity very near and dear to his heart. And it took him a while until he got first an athlete to world championships, right? And then it took him longer until, you know, he got a medalist. And then it took him, gosh, it's 11 years later. Well, others might have taken the shortcut, but it's 11 years later and he coached his first, you know, world champion. And I, I love that because it's so meaningful to him because like he did it in the way that espoused his values where he could look back and say, I stuck with the values that I brought to this sport and the professional nature of the sport didn't change those values. And I think that makes the end result, whether it's a win or falling short, I think it makes it so much more important and uh, so much more gratifying. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I'm right there with you. I think that's right, Um, 100%. All right, number seven. When you are faced with uncertainty and the road forward isn't clear, keep coming back to your core values to guide your decision-making. All right, so very much related to number six. Um, If you're a coach and there's an ethical dilemma and you don't know what to do, well, ask yourself, what are are my values and what would make older me proud? Um, If you're an athlete, and you're faced with a situation on a team and you don't know what to do, ask yourself, well, what do I really value? Like, how do I live my values? I think that so much of life is uncertain and complex, but we can always come back to our values. So again, example values could be excellence, integrity, trust, respect, community, love, compassion, discipline, reputation, you name it. And what's nice about them is no one can take what you value away from you. And when you're going through an uncertain situation, you can always ask yourself, what do I value? So Steve at the Oregon Project, young kid, completely overwhelmed, um, the shittiest of shitty situations, presumably somewhere in there has a deeply held value of integrity or honesty or um, ethical or morality, whatever it might be. And 
when you don't know what to do because you're a young kid in that situation, some part of you had the courage and the wisdom to say, well, what do I value and what's older me going to be proud of? And then you did that thing. And I ultimately think that's the power of values for navigating really difficult periods of uncertainty. Yeah, it, it really is those values and perspectives. You know, I'm not saying I had it all figured out and did a values exercise when I did that, but you, I remember clearly reflecting on essentially the way I phrased it at that point was like, what can I live with? And when you say, what can I live with? You're reflecting on like, what can you handle from a value standpoint, you know, years down the line where you can reflect and be okay with the decisions you make. Um, all right, number eight, after a big win or a tough loss, do what you can to reactivate your seeking pathway. What do you mean by that? So neuroscientists delineate between the rage pathway and the seeking pathway. And the rage pathway is just what it sounds like. It's like when you're raging, when you're angry, where you're really, really frustrated. And um, after we spend time in the rage pathway, we tend not to feel so good. We tend to feel down. And very rarely do we do anything productive in the rage pathway. And if we spend too much time in the rage pathway, um, it activates what neuroscientists call a sadness pathway, which is just what it sounds like. And anyone that's ever experienced like tons of anger after a hard loss knows that you're really angry and your adrenaline is high and you got all this cortisol and you're you know pissed off. And then you wake up the next morning and you feel kind of depressed. So that's the rage pathway giving out to the sadness pathway. However, they also identified this pathway called the seeking pathway, which is when you are goal-focused or when you're problem-solving or when you're planning or when you're working on a challenge. And what researchers have found is that the seeking pathway and the rage pathway are zero-sum. They both can't be on at the same time. So after a tough defeat, you might spend some time in the rage pathway, but the quicker that you can kind of switch to that seeking pathway, to that, hey, what's ahead for me? What can I learn from this and how can I move on? The better you'll feel and the better you'll do. Coaches, this is how you get over losses. Like it, it really is. I mean, it's think of it the, the way I like to frame it is after a tough loss, what happens? You feel what you're going to feel, maybe the athlete on the cool down, what have you. But then what do you do? You activate that seeking pathway often through the help with friends and socializing to get you, that cortisol down. But then the how do we learn, grow, get better, et cetera? What's the next challenge, next race, et cetera? All right. Number nine. Develop a routine to give yourself a sense of control and predictability during change and chaos, but don't become overly attached to it. Yeah, so we talk about this a lot. So let's talk about this at a state championship or a national championship for a collegiate runner or for a pro, a world championship or an Olympic event. Well, there's going to be a lot of stuff that you can't control <laughs> unless you are the race organizer and the head of nutrition and the head of um, the training rooms, which you're not because no one's ever all those things anyways, like you can't control how long you're going to be in the prep room for. You can't control if there's going to be a Cairo table outside. Uh, you might not even be able to control like what they have at the aid station. I mean, there's just so many things that can happen when you go to compete and you want to have some routine because if you go to a competition with no routine, it can just be overwhelming. Like there's all this uncertainty and change swirling around you. And, and that can be um, a little bit overwhelming. So the value of a routine is that it helps makes things feel more like home. It helps makes things feel predictable. You do your stretches, you do your striders, you have your mantra, you do your breathing exercise, you, you have your cliff bar, whatever it is, the things that are portable that you can't control. 
But if your routine gets so elaborate, elaborate and intricate that you got to go through like 19 different steps, well, if you miss one step, are you going to freak out and then let that affect how you race? Of course not. So you want to have a routine because it does lend a sense of predictability and control to uncertain circumstances, but you don't want to get too close to it. So I think that it's about having a routine, having it be basic and simple, and realizing that there's a lot of value in that, but not having it be so complex that it becomes like the main thing. Because now you're not only worried about racing, you're worried about your routine. Um, And then finally, realizing that the routine is just that. The routine is not how you run your race. It's just to get your mind right. And if there are times when you can't do it, the Zen approach is saying, all right, now my new routine is not having one. Or now my new routine is saying goodbye to my routine and just running this effing race. The the high school coaches are probably laughing at, you know, that time when they had their high school kid who forgot to take the goo at 90 minutes before whatever and freaked out because they thought the race was going to be complete crap. Right. So this is this is the the crux of coaching. Right. Having something that works, but also being able to flexibly deviate it without them freaking out. And that's on us as coaches to like a um, engender that and get them to see that a routine is this way, but also, you know, have flexibility and then coach them up on how to do this. Okay, the last one, separate real fatigue from fake fake fatigue. What do you mean by that? Ooh, all right. This is one of my um, one of my favorites. I got into it with a coach uh, at a at a big swimming conference who kind of reminded me of Marcus actually um, a couple weeks ago on this topic because I was talking about um, like exhaustion and fatigue, and he's like, "Fatigue doesn't exist." I'm like, "What do you mean? Say more." And then we got into this whole conversation. He's very intellectual. So what I mean by this is that. Um, Real fatigue is when you're actually tired and when your mind-body system needs rest. What I call fake fatigue is when you still feel tired and you still feel like you need rest, but your mind-body system is actually recovered and as ready as it's going to be. And it's important to separate these two sensations because they respond well to very different things. When you have real fatigue, what you need to do is you need to rest and recover. You've got to let your mind-body system repair, rebuild, get stronger. But when you have fake fatigue, often what you need to do is you need to nudge yourself into action. So I think that the example that I always use with non-running folks that they get, so of course running folks are going to get it, is um, tapering a a relatively high-trained athlete. So Steve's sitting there nodding, and I'm no running coach, but I know enough to know that the way that you taper a highly trained athlete is to back off their volume and intensity for a period of time And then always make sure you sprinkle in just a few pretty hard efforts as the race gets closer, not because you're trying to gain fitness, but because you're trying to nudge that athlete back into a state where they're feeling fresh and ready. What happens during a taper? You start the taper and you're really, really tired. And you've done all this work. You've accumulated all this fatigue and fitness. And the goal is to shed that fatigue and let that fitness soak in. So you are experiencing real fatigue. You're freaking tired from training. So you rest and you rest and you rest. But then a week later, 10 days later, two weeks later, maybe even three weeks later, depends on the athlete in the event. Well, now you're as recovered as you're going to be. And every athlete now knows that nothing is worse than being deep in a taper and you feel flat. And you're like, why am I feeling flat? I'm supposed to feel recovered. It's because now you've got what I'd call fake fatigue when you're just kind of in the inertia or in the rut of being tired. And what do we do? 
couple striders, couple sprints, you know, two by 20 seconds all out on the bike. Steve can get into the physiology of what makes the most sense. I'm not here to nitpick that. What I'm here to say is the way that you wipe that fake fatigue is very different because at the start of a taper, the last thing you want to do is more intensity. You want to let the body rest. But at the end of a taper, you sprinkle in that intensity to wake the body up. I'm glad you went with that example because that's what I was going to use anyways, um, because it's like the perfect example of it where it's like you're resting recovered, but you see it in an athlete. You almost get this this drudgery during that taper, that dullness that athletes will often say like, oh, I, I just feel like I have no spark, no bounce, no pop, what have you. And what do you have to do? You have to give them just enough so that it wakes their body up. It gets their nervous system going. So I love that example. And it's the same in life as well. Sometimes, you know, you need recovery. Other times you're going to be pulled towards binging Netflix, but what you really need to do is get out and go for a walk or exercise a little bit, and that's going to give you that energy. Okay, Brad, these were great. Ten examples, I think, for athletes that any coach can can um, can utilize. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to give your, your quick pitch on why you think that coaches should order Master of Change and then I'm going to tell them why they need to anyways. Well, my quick pitch is because Steve endorses it. And uh, you all listen to Steve's podcast. Uh, no, in all seriousness, you know, I wrote this book. I gave it my all. Uh, I tried to apply equal parts, evidence, practice, and history to come up with some concepts and some language for things that I think are really important. But more important than that language and concepts are ways to actually practice it. The way I think about coaching, whether you're coaching high school, middle school, pro, collegiate, whether you're coaching athletes, executives, doctors, nurses, it doesn't matter, whether you're a teacher, coaching is a teacher, is you want to have a really big toolkit. And the bigger your toolkit, the better. But it's not just enough to have tools. You want to know when to apply what tools. And what I try to do in this book is to arm you with a bunch of tools for managing changes, uncertainty, and also teach you how to apply them. Love it. And all I can say is um, I heartily endorse Master of Change. I think it's I think it's your best book that you've done yet. I think from a coaching standpoint, it's probably your most important because if I had this book when I was wrestling with, you know, being a 401 miler or state champion or a high school prodigy, like I would have handled that a lot better and probably would have had a more successful career, which probably would have meant I wouldn't would not have had a good writing career. So maybe maybe I didn't need this book because I needed to wrestle with everything. But in all seriousness, it's it's a gem. Um, coaches, you're going to find a lot of very useful content, um, a useful takeaways and practical tools that you can apply for your athletes and athletes. If you're listening, it's going to help whether you're starting your your career in your high school, college kid trying to fix it figure it out or you're like brad and i at the tail end of our athletic pursuits where prs are going to disappear soon and we've got to figure out how running exercise fits into our life so suggest it you can get it wherever books are sold right now just a heads up as we're recording this it's on a deep discount on amazon so check that out master of change by brad Stolberg. Links will be in the show notes. Brad, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And we really appreciate you uh, supporting all of the runners and coaches out there. All right. Keep doing what you're doing, runners and coaches. We need you. We love you.